0: In this interview, I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Clough Daffern, philosopher, educator, peace activist, and peace officer for the Council of British Druid Orders. Most widely known as a peace activist and academic, Dr. Daffern is also an esotericist, and in this episode he reveals his system of peace magic, which draws on a wide range of occult systems. Dr. Daffern explains the difference between a peace magician and a war magician, warns of the dangers of magical practice, and gives advice for navigating today's information landscape. Dr. Daffern also gives a series of case studies of his own career in peace and reconciliation, including work in Ireland and the Middle East, before giving his detailed analysis of the 2022 invasion of Ukraine. So, without further ado, Dr. Thomas Clough Daffern. Dr. Thomas Clough Daffern, welcome back to the podcast. Greetings. Thank you for having me again. It's
1: uh, we meet at a critical time in world history, so it's good.
0: Indeed. And uh, actually, this is our third conversation, our third interview, but it will be released second um, because we've decided to release this pronto on account of the current situation that we're in. And your work as a peace druid seems rather relevant here. Uh, we're going to talk about that of course so this is the third conversation but it will be released second in the sequence uh actually the the one that we've still got in the can that's yet to be published is totally fascinating going deep into druidry and the esoteric and all sorts of very fascinating things so look out for that one uh but anyway so here's our if you want on the spot release for this uh peace druidry uh topic and actually uh was been working my way through your uh workbook here magical peacemaking a handbook of skills for practitioners and theoreticians totally fascinating and i thought i'd just read a little from the intro here and uh and then perhaps you can contextualize this book and what is a peace druid and and your work uh, in that field you write here in the intro i've been recently struck by a strange anomaly namely that whereas there are a very great number of books on peace issues and conflict resolution and mediation in all manners of shapes and sizes and intellectual content, there are in fact none or very few that deal with esoteric causes and consequences of peacemaking and how to help stop wars and violence from this more esoteric perspective. And later you write, to sum up then, the work you hold in your hands is based on over 30 years of in-depth study theory and practice in precisely the field of what I've come to call peace magic and represents an in-depth sharing that I feel is appropriate at this time in world history. And you wrote this book or published this book anyway in 2020. And so uh, what is peace magic? And can you give us a sense of uh, your, I suppose, motivation behind putting this together? And, and, and you know, what is a peace druid? Gosh, okay. So um,
1: the word druid in Gaelic, Irish, um, is translated as magician in, English and in the New Testament the three magi that come to see baby Jesus are called in the Gaelic New Testament the three druids so you know a druid is a magician and vice versa a magi was a priest of zoroaster who was the the prophet of ahura mazda the lord of light who brings truth and and works on the elevation of consciousness zoroastrianism is about purity of thought word and deed consciousness transformation and working with the elements of light against darkness so darkness represented by angra menu um, <clears throat> which in common parlance is the devil is the kind of source of catastrophes in the world um, and according to zoroastrianism there's this cosmic battle between good and evil going on and we were actually created by ahura Mazda to help to help the forces of light win and this this is a battle that has implications for the entire universe, because this planet has, has free will. So people can choose evil, but then they pay the karmic consequences. So that's the Zoroastrian take on what's going on at the moment. And the role of the Magi was to assist the forces of light, I. enlightenment, wisdom, consciousness, in conquering evil, destruction, darkness. So they're on the side of life. The Druids uh, play the same function. And if you look at all the (coughs) cultures of the world, every religion, there's always something like a Magi. There's something like a Druid, a shaman, whatever you want to call them. Um, You know, the medicine man of of the Sioux tribes or uh, the shamans of the African tribes and so on. Or the the priest of the the Buddhist, uh, you know, dispensation or the rabbi or whatever. Um, although in the Hasidic tradition, there are um, the wonder worker is the Kabbalist. So what I've what I've tried to do, and and it just struck me. I mean, I've worked in peace studies, peace research, conflict resolution in academia. It's very, you know, most of my colleagues they're all wonderful people, but they're they're very wedded to a sort of social scientific approach to peacemaking, and it's very much like going out and doing sociology in conflict zones. And then you come home, you publish your results and you weigh the figures and, you know, that's it doesn't actually do anything. Um, So I I feel that normal knowledge is like sociological knowledge is sort of horizontal. It's not going to solve these crises, which often are crises of meaning and identity and culture and and religion. People will die for their religion, and they're doing so at the moment. I mean, when we come to talk about Ukraine, I'll explain how religion plays a factor in that. Um, But in, say, the Israel-Palestine wars, the et cetera, et cetera. So I think we have to also approach conflict at a magical level. And we need to train up people who are skilled enough and able to do that. Not, it's not everybody's cup of tea. You know, some people prefer to be SAS types, and learn weapons training and go in and kill. I'm saying there's a role for the nonviolent violent <clears throat> peace worker. One thing about Druids is they're sworn to personal nonviolence. You know, you don't ever do like um, physical force stuff. What you're doing is you're using spiritual power to bring about a, a peaceful resolution of the conflict. So I thought what I would do, having, having you know, studied this and I've sat in libraries all over the world and studied all this stuff, I thought I'd put it in a little handbook for for people that might be drawn to this work. It's not going to be many people, you know, um, because it's a difficult and um, sometimes even dangerous path. But um, anyway, I've given away a lot of stuff in that book and it's a kind of a lifetime's legacy for people that uh, are interested.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, and there is a lot actually. And the format of the book is you give some orienting chapters And then there are 51 uh, exercises. You sort of organize it as a year course, in a sense. Could you give a sense of what it looks would look like to work through this book? uh, Hmm. um, And from there, how one would apply that in real situations of conflict?
1: Gosh, Okay. well, (laughs) I'll just take an example. Chapter 21 um, is called Outer Body Magic and Peace Magic. So what I've done in this book is go through some of the traditional areas that that magic is interested in. And one of those is is this strange ability of human beings to leave their body or apparently leave their body in their astral body. Sometimes it's called remote viewing or astral projection. It's been called projectiology. The Hebrews called it the Makava mysticism. Their soul traveled on a chariot to the heaven worlds. Others call it shamanic journeying or soul ascent. Um, or even active imagination, you know, because it's a sort of imaginal journey to begin with. There've been lots of studies. So first I give a summary of all this. What is this field? Uh, Psychical researchers are studying it. Um, We've we've got classic texts from people like Swedenborg and Jung and you name it. Um, And more recently, a wonderful um, chap from Brazil um, who's uh, invented a whole new field Um, to study this so then I give an exercise and this is meant to be done like lying down preferably with your partner or a trusted friend reading the text to you so you go into like a semi-trance but um, you know preferably lying down on a massage table or something warm and then you go on like a guided visualization. And in this particular case, I take you, or the person who's reading it, takes you to imagine you're in the Judean desert with Jacob. Now, Jacob is a historical figure who had a strange dream, which Jacob's dream um, of seeing angels ascending and descending. And it's it's a formative, classic kind of dream, especially important in the Kabbalah. So anyway, I, I give my interpretation of that. Um, and to quote, I see, you see all of human history speeded up as a process of angelic ascending and descending. And that gradually we humans are evolving as we remember more of our interlife states and learn to respect and appreciate all the diversity of souls in existence at any one time. And to realize we come from one common love field you see Jacob as a wise shaman, embracing the druids of his day, the priests and priestesses of all other faiths of then and now. You see every true rabbi, sage, scholar, imam, priest, druid, or sufi as a peace magician, adding one more line of gnosis to the universal text of cosmic wisdom. So that's a little excerpt from the exercise. So, so you know, it would take about 20 minutes, half an hour to do it properly. You go through And it creates in your mind, it's better than Netflix. It's like watching an inner movie, okay. Then then each chapter has an image. um, And then there are some practical examples. So from history. So I talk about say, Muhammad's night journey, which for Muslims is a very important sacred event. Well, it was an out of body experience. His wife Aisha swore his body never left the bed you know, he was there physically, but it was out-of-body experience. So we have two billion Muslims on the planet who all believe in out-of-body experience. We have many reports of near-death experiences, which are all essentially out-of-body journeys, which we do after death, but in some cases we come back, we're not allowed to die. And then there are other types, sometimes in dream states, we can have lucid dreaming where we dream we're out of our body. I've, I've had Quite a few of those. Um, and then I give examples of what you should and shouldn't do. So, things to do, yes, um, you know, study these, these traditions, but then things not to do are to do it for the wrong reason. So, don't make a game of this. Don't sort of, um, you know, like buy a cheap book about how to do astral projection and then play around with it because it's dangerous. I mean, it's your soul here. It's a sacred thing. And the other thing is don't, um, <clears throat> don't cast your pearls before swine. That's, that's a phrase from Jesus, who I think was a superb, brilliant peace magician. Um, don't give away too many of your secrets to the wrong people because they'll misuse them and turn them back on you. Unfortunately, that's what they did to Jesus, if you think about it. He, might, he maybe should have kept his own counsel a bit. Uh, he was, you know, caught out. And then I give an example of when to use this skill. So, um, <clears throat> whenever the world is in trouble, you can draw on this ability to see the whole problem from a much higher perspective. Um, and if you have a partner, you can also do this, you know, conjointly, which makes it even more powerful. Um, and then I give a final quotation for each of these chapters. And in this case, it's from Plato, who's one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived. and. At the very end of the Republic, Plato tells an out-of-body experience by Ur, who um, who nearly died. He died, went to the afterlife, but then woke up and came back and told people what had happened. And it's absolutely a, the, the most important bit in the whole of Plato's works. If, if you want to understand Plato's thinking, read that myth of Er. It's like seven pages of dialogue. And... Um, it proves, you know, um, that Plato understood about outer body traveling and the whole of Neoplatonism is an attempt to explain that. Um, so anyway, that's a typical chapter, right? And it, it takes a week to really study that and, and, and also to do the exercise and then keep a diary and write it up. and Um, so there, there, that, that's an example. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. And you talk about, um, You mentioned danger there a couple of times. Um, I'm curious if you might expand on that. You write, I was led to see that magicians and druids are in no ways immune from falling into disputes and conflicts. And the fact that they may know a great deal about magical and occult practices does not render them immune to the sort of issues like pride, arrogance, egotism, and verbal violence that other lesser mortals also experience. (laughs) Indeed, I learned that sometimes battles among and between occultists and magicians can be some of the most horrendous to be witnessed precisely because their disputants have such a high level of magical knowledge and so often it would appear misuse their powers for occult mastery over others instead of in service to truth. So I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about about the dangers here. Um, it seems that much of what what's written here are in a certain sense, personal contemplative practices or rituals, et cetera, that one does. Uh, You give a lot of examples of real life conflict situations, for instance, you know, uh, you meet a sociopath at work, for example, how do you apply this principle there, or there's a war going on somewhere else or somewhere where you are, et cetera, you give these sorts of examples, but predominantly it seems these are uh, contemplative practices that one does with oneself or rituals and so on that one does with, you know, as you said, a partner, a friend, etc. Well, I'm I'm wondering what the effect of that is. But uh, could you talk maybe a bit about the danger aspect of it? And if I've characterized the application of these techniques correctly?
1: Yeah, I think I think that that's um, that's a good summary of it. Um, And the question of danger is. Yeah, you know, in in all things spiritual, there's always the danger of egotism and doing the thing for the wrong reason. Um, and human beings are complex and difficult creatures Um, and we have I mean that's why Buddha insisted on going beyond egotism even to get to the first base of proper spiritual work we have to surrender that egotism so you know as a peace magician one doesn't work for oneself one doesn't work for a country or an intelligence agency or anything like that those are Those are all trapped in this this game of egotism. What I call uh, a peace magician is a wisdom worker or a wisdom agent. You're working for the cosmic mind, the noosphere, to reconcile all the countries, all the religions and all the um, ideological factions. I mean, human beings, we on this plane of being, we we, we, um, we fracture from the monad, the unity, we fracture into divergence. We become different races, cultures, languages, um, and nations and religions. <clears throat> but at the point of, of unity, you know, the perception that, say, Jacob had or, or Mohammed or Moses, there's a place of divine unity. The peace magician's work is to try and re-establish our, our ordinary, everyday, fundamental social consciousness back in that place of unity. And um, now... <sighs> The danger is that, of course, people that are benefiting from division, people that are benefiting from the fracturing of society will resist and oppose that if they find out what you're doing. Um, so, you know, back in, I mean, political parties are perfect at this. Political parties are a problem because they they benefit from demonizing the other. And therefore, they they depend, you know, this minister or this prime minister or whatever, he is he is by definition a machine for egotistically attacking the other guys, which you see in this ritual at the House of Commons every week, which is, you know, my heart breaks every time I see it because instead of that sort of divisive, hate-filled speech, I think we should have a love-based, cooperative approach in politics so that we work together, whatever our political party. I'm a great believer in coalitions and and finding common ground and wisdom. And some some great statesmen politicians in the past have known that you know they've been proper what I would call peace magicians. Um, I think of Gladstone. He was one of the most intelligent uh, people in the Commons spiritually. I'm talking about who left his um, he left his entire library and everything to the nation. It's a centre for divine learning in um, in North Wales. But they're few and far between, you know. So the danger is. Um, <clears throat> if you, and this goes back to the Magi, the story of the Magi, when the, the, the Magi or Druids came to see the baby Jesus, um, they were being hunted for their lives by Herod, they had to go back a different way in the Gospel of Matthew, because Herod, you know, who was like the politician of the day, did not want this teaching of divine unity to come into the world, and he knew that this baby was going, that was something special, um, and therefore sought to crush it at birth, which led to the massacre of the innocents in Bethlehem. And these these Druids had to sneak back a different way. Now, so often, the, the peace magician, if you're being effective, you have to, in a sense, work undercover and do your work anonymously. I mean, the, some of the greatest philosophers of history have done that. In France here, we have a tradition. There's a man called Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, who was a Freemason and a cultist. He was working at the level of a peace magician, absolutely. And he called himself the unknown philosopher. In his day, nobody knew he existed, really. He wasn't famous. He didn't give lectures in the Sorbonne. He was doing the real work in secret. We also had the um, um, Valentin Tomberg, who wrote about the hermetic tradition of the tarot, another in that tradition of French esoteric, Peace magic. he He was a great occultist who published his work anonymously. It was written as a series of letters, and nobody knew it was Tomberg until like thirty years later. Um, so so, uh, and there's the tradition of Shakespeare, you know that that he might have um, actually been some sort of um, magus using the young Shakespeare to write his works. And if you look at the works of Shakespeare, they're a form of peace magic, these great plays, which tell about the unfolding of karma, the tragedy of violence and, and false love. And, you know, but if you stay on the straight and narrow, you, you reach a happy ending. I mean, that's peace magic in a nutshell. And, and again, so I would say Shakespeare, quote unquote, is the magus behind them, is another one who chose to operate anonymously. Um, and there are many other examples. I mean, Sufis usually, you know, they they operate. You don't know who's a Sufi or not, um, and that's for very good reason, because you want to stay alive to be able to go on doing the work. Um, okay, can I can I go on and just summarise a little bit about, like, I've got a series of things I want to share with you and and whoever's listening. Um, <clears throat> And I just want to start with this thing about Stonehenge because that was quite important. I was asked by this, um, you know, um, pagan elder who was half Polish and half Scottish to 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 set up something to do with with the conflict at Stonehenge. So I set up this Truth and Reconciliation Commission, modelled on the South African thing. We had about thirty meetings in Wiltshire. It's still going on. The the problem hasn't been solved but that was important to me that was like the first time really that I set up some sort of institutional mechanism to to bring people together to think through conflict and how we can resolve it and um you know a lot of pagans a lot of druids but christians and quakers and others um trying to talk with the police and the official english heritage and so on and it was set up at the time of tony blair's labor government so there was a sort of a sense that, yes, we should be able to talk to people in authority and power. Um, And, you know, it was relatively successful in that we got at least Stonehenge open every summer and winter solstice and the equinoxes. But it's not been resolved properly. I I want a proper pilgrimage centre there for the pagan and Druid community somewhere in the vicinity of Stonehenge. You know, I think it's ridiculous that the military, the army, um, have a lease on most of Salisbury Plain hundreds of square you know um acres or, or whatever hectares of land which they drive their tanks over and you remember from the Beatles thing and help you know the tanks coming to Stonehenge this is absurd I think we should at least get 10 acres for a peace center a pilgrimage center near Stonehenge off the army and get it least for 999 years that's That's the Stonehenge Spiritual Pilgrimage Center project. Um, So anyway, that's just one of the series of things I want to tell you about. Um, Shall I go on? Shall I do the next one? Yes, please do. Interrupt me with any questions, you know. Um, From that, which was set up in about 99, 2000, um, I then looked at the problems of Ireland and Britain. And I set up with colleagues, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for Britain and Ireland. Now I'm part Irish, you know, I'm English, I'm British. I'm very mindful that in England, you don't get taught much Irish history as part of the curriculum. We don't learn the Irish Kings. We don't learn the fact that there was a ancient Irish culture speaking Gaelic before the English even landed in these islands, you know. And we don't learn anything about the fact that they had these priests called Druids who, there's a whole literature in Irish about them and their pantheon of gods and goddesses. So, of course, you know, in the 19th century, the Irish, um, uh, with Yeats and, and others, A.E., a theosophist, they, you know, they revived the ancient wisdom of the Irish. And in 1916, they had a revolution. They wanted independence. And then it's dragged on, you know, we have all these troubles, the time of troubles in in Ulster, in in Northern Ireland. I grew up with bombings and, you know, horrendous death count. And so in the 2000s, I thought, well, let's have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission historically to look back on this time and let's, um, you know, the Good Friday Agreement had come, we'd had a peace treaty, because we were all in the European Union, it was it was a uh, there was no actual killing going on anymore. So let's let's come together now as friends, whether we're Catholic or Protestant or pagan or whatever, and like you know try and try and reconcile what happened, grow out of it. And we the first meeting took place deliberately in Hollyhead in Anglesey, which was the old Druid island of Britain, um, which is sort of. Just off North Wales, on the way to Ireland, was a ferry that goes to Ireland, Dublin. So we had we launched that meeting in the in the two thousands, about two thousand and five, I think. And um, you know, we've had several meetings since in Dublin, in Belfast, um, and then also in Britain in Salisbury, trying to hear from all sides. You know what happened, and we got some very moving testimony. It was filmed. Um, my colleague Nicola Haig filmed it, made it into a little documentary and so on. Um, And I thought it was, that was, you know, a historical thing. But of course, now it's all blown up again with Brexit. Um, And Ireland has become, you know, the uh, once more ignored and and the sort of ugly duckling of English politics. So we have politicians like Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, saying, Well, effectively, she said, oh, who are the Irish? I don't know about them. I don't care about them. Let them have another famine. You know, like the total arrogance of the English towards the Irish astounds me. Um, And then I, because I, the reason I did all this is because I spent quite a lot of time in Ireland talking to Druids, learning about their sacred history, reading the Irish texts, learning how ancient they are. And to me, it's, The suppression of indigenous spirituality that, you know, we all talk about now, sort of indigenous people around the world have the right to a voice, okay. But it begins in Britain with the suppression of the Celts and particularly the Irish. It was the arrogance of Westminster, um, monetarist economist kind of worldview. The only thing that matters is my banking and my profits. That was invented in London. And then so the actual spirituality of the people of Ireland, the fact that they love their Catholicism tinged with paganism. Well, no, let's suppress that. So the English outlawed Irish education to be delivered in Gaelic for like three centuries. And if you were caught, you were, like, had you, you know, you were severely punished. Um, they had to meet in what's called hedge schools so that they could only meet in the countryside along the hedge. Um, so I discovered all this stuff. You know, this is this is spiritual oppression. Eventually, it led to the Irish um, Revolution, 1916. They got they got half the island or three quarters of the island independent. But there's a there's a legacy. It's still not been resolved. And I think the arrogance of the Brexit Conservative government just sums up all the worst aspects of English. Uh, yeah, um, sort of anti spirituality. And it's ultimately about crushing people's right to their own uh, faith systems. And it began here in these islands, in with the suppression of Ireland. So that's why I set up the Truth and Reconciliation Commission for Britain and Ireland, which is a live project that's still ongoing. And, um, you know, I, I uh, um, yeah, I, I think it's only going to be resolved when there's, by law, there should be a referendum for Ireland if they want to, reunite as one country and i think the figures are that they will do that you know in the next few years they have the legal right because it was said in the good friday agreement that if um if there's a significant change to the constitution of the countries they should have that referendum and brexit was that change but the english media don't tell you that you know um irish people know this and they're just sort of wait waiting for the time So, okay, that's that, that's one exact project. And, um, you know, I've been working with Irish colleagues and British colleagues to to sort of try and get that conversation going. So any questions so far?
0: I suppose, I'm curious about your saying that the the suppression of indigenous religious or spiritual uh, expression began in Westminster. I'm i I'm wondering about I'm thinking, of course, my mind immediately goes to let's say uh suppression of the Roman mystery uh the, the Greek mystery schools, um, by the Roman Empire, uh, for example, especially when it became Christianized. And I'm thinking of a situation like that or many other similar dynamics that have occurred throughout history in different places. I I'm before or perhaps in, in parallel to that. So I'm wondering about this this causal uh um, argument. What's what's behind that? Could you explain that a little more?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, I wasn't I wasn't meaning literally. It all began in Westminster, and Westminster's the blame for the whole thing. I meant in in the British Isles context. That's that's been the the fulcrum of this arrogant. Um, I mean, <clears throat> you know, just to give you an example, the suppression of the Quakers was was done by British Parliament, and one of the great Quaker mystics, James Naylor, who had prophetic gifts and stuff. Parliament Parliament ruled that he should have a hot poker stuck through his tongue. And it was done as a punishment, as a punishment not to give prophecy, because Quakers, you're not allowed to do that. It's stuck a hot poker. And that was done by act of parliament. The suppression of the Catholics in, in, uh, in England and Wales, uh, with legislation from parliament, again, was part of the suppression of that indigenous Spirituality, which then spilled over into Ireland with the conquest or attempted conquest of Ireland. So that's the Westminster thing, but yes, they inherited ideas going back to the kind of Byzantine state um, and and Justinian and Theodosius's suppression of the Greek mysteries, Eleusis, and and so on. And I think the arrogance of the Church has a lot to answer for it. Um, you know um there are many things about christianity i love and there are many things about the anglican church i love but there are some things that are horrendous and this sort of byzantine model that you have the monarch who's unanswerable to anybody who's unapproachable and in whose name all this is done that's that's you know that's what enables them to get away with it because it's by act of the crown that i'm going to cut your head off or whatever But actually, what is this fiction, The Crown? It's a sort of toxic Byzantine superstructure of torture at the end of the day. And if it catches you and you happen to be a Jesuit, then I'm afraid you're for the fire, you know? Um, So we have to unthink all that. So so yes, whilst I'm working on particular cases, like say, Ireland, I'm also thinking away as a philosopher on theory What's the deeper cause of this? If we can solve just this one problem, can that be applied to others, you know? Um, Let me just give you one example. For instance, I I was reading, rereading the book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, about the American history of the West. And there's a terrible thing that happens called the Sand Creek Massacre, when a bunch of American army, cavalry people fire on unarmed women and children kill over a hundred. It's like Wounded Knee, uh, but it's sort of earlier on, the Sand Creek Massacre. And the guy who ordered that, the cavalry officer, was from Colorado and he was a very upstanding Freemason. He was one of the founders of Freemasonry in Colorado. We know his name. And he gave the order to these rabble of um, Indian types, you know, fire away, shoot them. Now, behind him comes all that sort of Masonic secrecy, duty. And that's also embedded into West, the Westminster mindset that, um, you know, <clears throat> let's, let's bomb Yemen. We'll sell bombs to the Saudis to bomb Yemen because the crown says we have to. And nobody questions the morality. Nobody has the courage to step out of that oppressive system and say, hmm, hang on, is this right ethically? A true peace magician always questions everything, you know, um, and that guy is a disgrace to Freemasonry. I mean, Freemasons are some wonderful, excellent people throughout history, but that guy disgraced them by ordering the Sand Creek Massacre. Um, So when I'm looking at the Irish problem, I'm also gathering other case studies and looking at this dynamic of oppression of indigenous spirituality, whether it's an island, or whether it's in the Midwest and the States. Oh, very interesting. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, can I, I'll move on to the next topic if I may, because I've got a few yeah, yeah. I want to get through and, and I'm going to get to Ukraine at the end because that's like in our face, that's what's going on now. After doing that Truth and Reconciliation Commission in, in Britain and Ireland, and that's an ongoing project, <clears throat> we're now in the sort of late 2000s, 2009, eight, And the Middle East is kicking off the entire time. We've got the Gaza wars keep coming every summer, you know, bombing, white phosphorus, you know, the pain of all this. And I mean, I know Israel. I've been there. I've got friends who who live in Israel and I've been to Palestine. So. So I thought, well, and I've been waiting for somebody else to do this, but nobody was doing it. So I said, well, we need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission for the Middle East. Obviously, I mean, how are these people gonna talk to each other? How are we gonna stop this killing, and bombing, and massacring? They're all terrified of each other. So I flew to um, Tel Aviv with Nicola, uh, who brought her camera, and we went around Israel and Palestine. We interviewed intellectuals, artists, peacemakers. We went to Bethlehem and interviewed Reverend Dimitri Raheb, who runs the Bethlehem church. We interviewed uh, Sufis. We interviewed an amazing Sufi up in um, uh, North of Israel um, <clears throat> who was convinced for the first 20 minutes, he wouldn't talk. He thought I was a British intelligence agent. He said, I'm not talking to you. Bloody, you're the enemy, you know? <laughs> and eventually, I mean, it was caught on camera actually. I said, look, I'm not, I'm the peace druid of Britain. And his eyes totally changed. He started smiling and he said, cause he understood what a druid was this Sufi guy, who's one of the most important Sufis in Israel, and he, he said, we're blood brothers, you and me, and then we had a great discussion interview, it was all filmed, um, and I interviewed, yeah, you know, Jewish savils and so on, so that's an ongoing project, and I've I've been back, I've done more interviews, I've also recorded on tape a lot of very interesting interviews with people that you see, the thing about the Israelis, they're incredibly spiritual. These people are practicing magicians, Kabbalists, a lot of them. You know, This guy might work in, as a volunteer for the Israeli Defense Force you know, once a year because he's done his military service, and then you can be called up. But secretly, he's really into esotericism, the occult. He's reading the books of Enoch. He's, you know, They're all like Yuri Geller, I discovered. They're incredible people. But so are the Palestinians. I went and interviewed the Palestinians. They are to die for intelligent. Uh, I mean, statistically, there are <clears throat> two countries in the world which have the most PhDs per population, and that's Israel and Palestine. They're both supremely well-educated. I knew the Palestinian ambassador to London and ran meetings in the House of Lords, which he used to come from. He he said that the, the terrain is too small for any sort of um, horizontal moves. You know, one can't conquer the other. So they can, only, they can only expand vertically. And he meant by that, that they can only expand spiritually. He was a Palestinian Christian, in fact, who was also ambassador to the Vatican from Palestine. And I think the solution to this tragedy is a vertical expansion. As they, as they come into their, their mutual peace magic, both of them, And after all, Jacob, I I quoted him in his out-of-body experiences. He's the founder of the whole idea of Israel. The name Israel was given to Jacob after he wrestled with an angel. And we can interpret that shamanically. You know, it came to him um, that that was his shamanic name. Um, So anyway, and then I've also worked with people in Turkey, um, in, in Iran, and Iraq and the wider Middle East community. Um, and that's what led me to do my commentary on the three great spiritual traditions. So I did an in-depth commentary on the Quran, an in-depth commentary on the Jewish scriptures and one on the Christian scriptures. And what I've been trying, and this is my scholarly work, trying to show that they're all vehicles of Gnosis or enlightenment. And that we mustn't judge between them. I'm not gonna say was Moses, Jesus or Muhammad a better prophet. They're all channels in their own time and place for the divine gnosis that is still there within, you know, it's it's what feeds us all. It's where we all come from. They all had their own karma and their own challenges and difficulties. And I'm still working. This is a long-term project. It won't probably be done in my lifetime. Sadly, I'll have to hand this on. a Truth and Reconciliation Commission from the Middle East. The goal is to open the um, the eastern door in the old city of Jerusalem and have a sort of peace tent on the golden, um, on, on the Temple Mount, where all religions are equally welcome. You know, and just bury these hatchets. Because at the moment, the war magicians are keeping the conflict alive for their own benefit, their own ego purposes, you know. What I'm saying is we need a whole influx of peace magicians to come and bury this for all humanity's sake, so that this region can become a place of peace once more, as it should be. So that's that project. That's number four.
0: What's a war magician?
1: <laughs> well, um, you may or may not know, but 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 there is a tradition in most cultures Um Of what we can call military or war magic. So, you know, the Maoris do their big chants before they go into battle. The samurai warriors would would do their zen meditation and then go in and, you know, be be extra beefed up. Um, The Scots Highlanders would have the bagpipes wailing. Um, In India, the timing of battles was often done by astrology, so the, the king would have astrologers who would fix that's the day to go to war. I noticed that Putin started his war on 2 to 22. You know, obviously, astrologers and stuff were saying that's the time to go, which is maximum division. All the twos, let's, let's do it. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, there is a whole tradition of using occult knowledge, astrology, esotericism for victory, for military purposes to defeat your enemy. I mean, we know that Hitler had his advisors, and so did Churchill. Um, so there's that whole thing, and people have written about this and studied it. Um, in a sense, what intelligence agents are doing is some of them are doing that, you know. What I'm what a peace magician is doing is completely different. It's using some of those same skills, but then applying them to reconciliation or peacemaking instead. Instead of victory for me and my army and my country and my queen, it's victory for the whole planet, the cosmic consciousness and humanity
0: as a whole, you know, the group soul. Well, perhaps I could ask a question then uh, a bit about that. If one's a peace magician and then there's a war magician, <laughs> um, presumably. The peace magician isn't going to fight the war magician uh, because they're peace magicians and then won't the war magician just what i'm trying to say is the problem of the standoff and of mutually assured destruction as we hear these days uh, the nuclear (laughs) deterrent um uh, impasse is is that essentially well if we become more peaceful and uh, Then it emboldens those who are enemies, who are not yet, say, as peaceful. Let's say, um, to uh, take advantage of our de-escalation. How does one become more peaceful without just simply being overrun by those who are who are not yet on that train? How can one uh, practically proceed uh, when these, I think, are the dynamics that are prevalent um, in the world? This is the objection to peace, God. isn't it? Well,
1: I. Okay, so let me give you a classic example. I, when I was working at the University of London and I was setting up a peace institute, which I now direct, um, I went to see Professor Lawrence Friedman, who is the leader of the War Studies Department at King's College. He's now on the Privy Council and uh, knighted and you know, greatly festooned with, with gongs. <clears throat> and I said, look, Lawrence, I'm setting up a peace institute. Would you want to help? And he looked at me with horror and said, peace? Peace doesn't exist. Only war is real. So that's the that's the classic archetypal conflict, if you want, between the peace magician and the war magician. The war magician, who's an academic of senior stature, who did his PhD on Britain's nuclear arms deterrence, um, can't literally can't see peace. Doesn't exist, you know, namely a time in history when there's been peace, you know, whatever. <clears throat> and then there's the peace magician who obviously can't deny there's war but sees that as turbulence on the on the surface of the lake in the zen parable it's only when the turbulence dies down that you can see the moon or enlightenment can come both forces exist we we are in a world in which conflict is real war is part of that tragically um, <clears throat> and we've all had interpersonal conflicts you know it's just part of human nature, right from childhood on. But I maintain as a philosopher uh, that that those are the turbulences on the lake's surface. And that, and that the more you go into the quest of self-knowledge, spirituality, when you go to the mysteries at Eleusis, this is what you learned. The soul's immortality is way beyond all that turbulence. And that's who we really are. So to be truthful to ourselves, our real soul nature, I believe that we have to to work with the peace that is there, which pre-exists and and is the foundation on which the turbulence sometimes comes and goes. So that's, that's, and I think that's, the peace magician is working at a more fundamental level of, of, of beingness. Um, and and affirmation. You see, in the, in the scriptures, God creates the universe and then says it's good. It's tov. It's that goodness of being that is my work to affirm that. And so, yes, you're right. If I see people quarrelling, I will I will support both sides with love, because they're both good. They've just got a, a, a tangled version of each other's stories. And that's why John Burton, the great expert on conflict resolution said, it all comes down to miscommunication. The way to solve conflicts is get them communicating. Um, which takes me to my next point. Can I move on to the next point? Because John Burton and others, when I worked at the University of London, they inspired me to create a, <clears throat> a unique mediation service. I trained in mediation um, in London. I trained in neighborhood mediation. I worked for Southwark Mediation Centre taking mediation into schools with kids. And then I trained in California in in, um, San Francisco in school mediation. And then because I was an interfaith um, expert, I I was working with religions and their disputes. And I realized nobody was trying to mediate these conflicts between religions. Um, and so I set up the multi-faith and multicultural mediation service, triple MS it's called. And we founded this in the East End of London in Kingsley Hall, where Gandhi used to live. I worked with the Gandhi Foundation as their educational director at the time. And um, <clears throat> and it's the only mediation service in the world that specializes in interreligious disputes or intercultural. Um, and I, since then, it's you know, it's still going. It's still active. People ring me up and say, you know, I've got this case going on between these, I don't know, this this group of religion X trying to kill religion Y. You know, would you take this on? And so it's, it's sort of, um, I must have watched too many episodes of Thunderbirds when I was a little boy. You know, it's like the hidden, the hidden rockets launched and we go into action. <laughs> um, so, so that's that was set up. And I wrote about that partly in my PhD, which I was doing at the time, um, as a case histories. And it's taken me, you know, and that's how I first got involved with all the druids who were, you know, a case. Um but but since then it's it's carried on, obviously. And um I mean, I'll give you a few examples. Let me just say one of the Cases we dealt with recently, and, and in a sense, too, there are too many cases that we're dealing with. You know, we sh- I should have a you know a proper proper team of of uh, and funding and you know all that. But um, sadly, a war broke out in the Caucasus over this disputed territory that the the people themselves call Artsakh, the um, people of Azerbaijan called Nagorno Karabakh. It's this, it's this. Complex um, territorial dispute in the Caucasus between Armenia and Azerbaijan, both post Soviet countries. And there was this enclave of Armenian Christians surrounded by Azerbaijani Muslim population. In 1993, there was a terrible war. There were, you know, uh, wars are always horrible, but, you know, they involve rape and massacring and kind of attempted genocide effectively. And this war between the Armenian Christians and the Azeri uh, Turkish Muslims has been going on a very, very long time. Um, And um, they're pretty entrenched, you know. The Armenians feel they have a weight of persecution in their history. They were genocided in World War I by the Turks in the Ottoman region. at least a million, possibly two were killed on forced marches and, and you know, it was horrendous. Um, and so they're terrified of, of, of Muslims really. And, uh, but the Muslims say, no, this is our territory. We, we own this country. And so they launched an attack um, and totally unprovoked, no warning, just started shelling this, this terrain. Um, and, you know, I tried to get people, I, I wrote, I offered mediation only on the religious side. <clears throat> so I was thinking if we can get the imams, get the spiritual leaders of Azerbaijan, the spiritual leaders of Armenia together, you know, to talk about this, like <clears throat> from, from both their religions, this is an unprovoked aggression like that, is illegal, immoral. Um, <clears throat> so that's an ongoing case. We issued a declaration. I had discussions with a rector of a university in Azerbaijan, in Baku, and also with Christians in Armenia. So that gives an example. Now, you know, I can't be a very good peace magician because if I was, I'd be able to wave a wand and they'd they'd stop their, their quarrels. But going back to your question about causality, you know, it's as if these people have a certain karmic stuff they have to work out um and that's the difficulty is how you can steer that in a in a in a peaceful positive outcome um instead of you know i mean fortunately that war's ended actually it was russia finally negotiated the troops in moscow they've agreed borders you know and i mean diazeri won the war and they reduced the size of that enclave but they've still got a bit of the enclave left so it's what we now call a frozen conflict it's not solved and for all we know it's going to flare up again and that's where i think there's a role for the you know the peace uh, spiritual mediation approach is to still get them to discuss um i mean i i when i was living in london and doing meetings in parliament i hoped that we could get a department in the Foreign Office to have a sort of mediation um, arm. I still think it would be sensible. I just had a letter today from the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss about Ukraine, so I'm in, in touch over that stuff. I think it should be part of the function of government to ensure that there's peace as much as possible around the world. I think that's good governments. Um, but I'll come on to that in a minute. Anyway, any, any, what other thoughts have you got so far?
0: <clears throat> no, I think it's still very interesting. Let's that's, that's, go on. I'm still curious what a peace magician does if a war magician takes umbrage with him. Um, but uh... <laughs> well, he obviously
1: disappears in the mist. I mean, you know, you retreat like a
0: Taoist. Do you know the
1: famous story of the Taoist? Uh, this is a true, a true story. The Taoist sage confronts the war magician, the samurai who wants to kill them. <clears throat> and um this is the confrontation and the you know the samurai warrior says well i want your this give me that give me your wallet whatever whatever so here have it all now i'm going to kill you okay go on fine so here go on have it. Ha-. gets his sword and the guy says are you sure i'm just going to kill you right he says yeah go go for it so the sword goes through the neck and comes out the other side without anything happening head doesn't roll off Taos magician bows and says, have you finished? And he's, and the samurai guy just is so shocked. He sort of falls to his feet and says, what's going on master? He says, well, I'm just blended with the void so much that your sword just, it's also made of void. It just all passed through void to void. You know, we're all illusion here. You're an illusion, I'm an illusion. Let's get on with the real journey here. You know, put that sword away. It's just made of nothingness. So that's a lovely story, and that to me is how a peace magician deals with a war magician. They educate them, and if it takes a bit of a miracle, so be it. That's what Jesus did. You know. Let me move on to talk about um, the Ukraine, because that is uh, very much in our face. Um, <clears throat> that's going on right now here in, in the world. And we know there are war magicians on both sides. You know, um, <sighs> It to me is an absolute tragedy that this has broken out. And I've been working behind the scenes with colleagues in Russia and Ukraine. I have friends who are philosophers in both Kiev and, and Moscow. I've been to Moscow a couple of times. I've met leading intellectuals there. I'm very disappointed in Putin, I have to say. I thought he was cleverer. Um, I've I've listened to his speeches and Lavrov. I think they've made a terrible, terrible mistake. I mean, they're, they're advised by people like this Dugin guy who is a kind of Russian occultist, you know. But he's a, he's, a, he's a sort of military. He's a war magician. He wants the great Russian expansion of the empire to start again. He, these people are filled with anti-liberal feelings. They hate the West because we're too liberal. Um, and I've discovered recently, Putin also has a lot of time for a guy called Ivan Ilyin who was a um, Russian philosopher who was um, taken out of Russia on order of Lenin on the philosopher's ship after the revolution. Lenin banished a lot of intellectuals, including this guy. Now, this guy, Elin, um was what they call a white Russian emigre, who ended up in living in Europe and praising Hitler and Mussolini because they were very strong, able to stand up against the Bolsheviks. This guy hated the Soviet Bolsheviks, right? And he thought they were evil. So therefore, Hitler and Mussolini become good, because they're standing up to them. Now, behind Hitler and Mussolini, there were quite a few of these dark occultists or war magicians. Most important was an Italian guy called Julius Evola. Now, Evola, um, who was an occultist of great lineage and so on, he ended up supporting Hitler and Mussolini. And he said that we now are entering the time of the Kshatriyas, the warriors. We need warriors to take charge of society, to lead mankind back to the light, because these liberal democratic politicians are all corrupt. They can't do it. So he supported Mussolini's march on Rome, because here's the hero warrior coming to save the Italian people. He supported Hitler's takeover of the constitution of Germany because here's the hero warrior coming to save Germany. <clears throat> and this guy, Ilyin, praised them, clapped and said, absolutely, and, and we need to defeat Russia. You see, I, I don't agree with the analysis of Dola <clears throat> or Ilyin because I maintain that, no, the kashat, it's not the time for kshatriyas to take over the control of the, of the world. They're the guys that always screw it up. You know, look what Hitler did. Look what Mussolini did. It's it's always the time for the Druids and the Brahmins, the true intellectuals, who are the holders of peace wisdom. They're the guys that, you know, should be running the show and are actually secretly behind the scenes. I mean, Gandhi was one of them. Um, Swami Vivekananda and, and Ramana Maharshi and, Tagore, all these are the true sages of India, not not the guy Bose who wanted India to join the fascists against Britain using force, and therefore went and joined the Japanese army. So, so that's and and what I was very shocked to read when I read recently there was an article um, about the influence on Putin personally of this man Iliad, that Putin. Reveres him so much. This is a fascist uh, intellectual, right, who said that war is the answer. He had his body exhumed from Switzerland, where he died, and brought back to Moscow and buried in the cathedral with full honours, that Putin went and prayed at his grave. So, Putin, bless him, has been sitting at the feet of dark magicians. And, and it fits his worldview, which is Orthodox Christianity is the only light, truth, and the way. He's, you know, when Soviet communism sort of collapsed and we can discuss, was that a good or a bad or what happened there? You know, personally, I think if Gorbachev had stayed in power for another 10, 20 years, we wouldn't be in this mess. He was intelligent enough. He was a peace magician, if you want. But now Putin, who was a son of KGB, has got this militaristic dark occultism going on in his head, which is, me and Russia and Moscow and the Orthodox Empire, we're going to crush these, these, this riffraff. He calls them, what does he call them? Nazi drug addicts. I mean, you know, it's like unbelievable to say that, I'm a fellow head of state. Um, so we have a real fight on our hands. And it is about these, these occult forces behind Putin. And I'll give you another little glimpse of this. I'm going to talk in a minute about my Interfaith Peace Treaty. I'll tell you a story about that when I come on to that, uh, about Putin, but um, so, yeah. um, And it seems to me Ukraine, on the other hand, desperately wants to be a liberal, modern democratic Western society. It wants to embrace the values of pluralism and be part of the European Union. It went through this, this Maidan event in 2013, 2014. I've watched this terrible film called Winter on Fire, which tells that story from the perspective of the people who were on the square, and they were being shot at by the, the then pro-Russian government under Yanukovych. Um, you know, that's peace, magic, in action. They were using nonviolence. They were having candles, they had priests, rabbis, imams going, they had children coming. And the government was shooting at them you know, and killing them. But they did not give in. They built barricades. They were incredibly inventive. They kept possession of that square, which is called the Maidan in, in their language. And the, it went on for three months, constant daily struggles, you know, and they won. And the government resigned and left. Then there was a constitutional handover of power. There were new elections, and that's the Zelensky lineage for, you know, constitutional government. But unfortunately, the Russian Putinists don't say that. They say no, it was a coup, and they challenge that whole thing. But, you know, as far as I can tell, um, it was a legitimate and general, genuine, you know constitutional democratic process that brought the Zelensky government in. And so that's what's at stake here. We have people that follow the sort of dark occult, let's use violence to crush the enemy route. Then we have other people following the, the light of genuine democracy. And you see, I, I trace this back actually to, there's a twin soul at the heart of European culture um, between the Spartan tradition and the Athenian tradition. The, the, the Maidan protesters, the, the Zelensky government, they're on the side of Pericles, who, who believed in culture and the arts and wisdom as the purpose of civilization. He was a peace magician, you know. Yes, the Athenians had to fight, and they are very good at it, but it wasn't their chosen thing. They didn't want to do it. <clears throat> they preferred poetry and philosophy and symposia. But the Spartans... Were a sort of militaristic streak that like fighting. They're the, the kind of war magicians, if you want. And so the, the Soviets are much more in that Spartan tradition, and the um, the Ukrainians are much more in the Pericles tradition. And uh, you know, I think that we have to um, affirm the Pericles democratic tradition. That's that's worth something. Um, <clears throat> so anyway. And and so did Socrates. He he would be with me on that. He was a bit of an old peace magician in his own way. Had his own daemon. <laughs> okay, what's and um, so that's Ukraine in a nutshell.
0: <clears throat> How can such a conflict be resolved? Thank you. Yeah, that's
1: that's the million-dollar question. Um, well, I've I've been putting out feelers to people, I've sent off letters, I've um we've issued a declaration the the um world intellectual forum and my institute of peace studies we've issued a declaration i think it it sets out a 13-point plan to resolving the conflict i'll send you a copy of it um you could put it in the bottom of this talk or whatever um more more strategically and long term i called in 2015 now this is a true story i'm about to tell you You know, I told you I was in Israel and and interviewing people for the TRC for the Middle East. I flew from Tel Aviv on the way home. I came to Athens and I was writing a novel at the time. And and then I got the train from Athens all the way up the Balkans, um, which is a part of the world I love. I did part of my degree on Balkan history. It's so rich, culturally fascinating. Macedonia, you know, to die for. Um, and it was at a time when Ukraine and Russia were fighting over, over gas and, and who owned what, and Russia cut off their gas supplies for a couple of weeks. And I had this intuitive download of fear. I had this sense of dread. I thought, oh my God, the next war is gonna break out in Ukraine over gas and oil, and Russia and Ukraine are gonna go bonkers and the whole the whole of Europe will be in flames. I could see it. In 2015, I foresaw this conflict, right? We're now like 12 years later or whatever. No, uh, seven years later. I saw it happening and, I, and then I got to Venice, which is the end of the trip. I got a flight back from Venice. And I, I was going around the Doge's Palace in Venice with all these maps of the world on the walls. Amazing place, Venice. And I thought, surely, you know, the European Union ought to set up a mediation service to resolve disputes on its borders, because otherwise they're just going to keep breaking out. And, you know, it's going to be not good for the European Union because there'll be millions of refugees coming in and we can't absorb them all. Much better is to send out bureaucratic peacemaker mediation types who can go and resolve these local conflicts in the Ukraine in any bordering state on EU land, including the Mediterranean. So places like Syria, Palestine, Israel, uh, Libya, North Africa, and so on. Like, and actually give them money not to fight. So instead of having to pay billions to absorb the immigrants and refugees and blah, blah, actually give them you know, 10 billion up front if they agree to the mediation, truce, ceasefire, whatever. Anyway, that vision came. That was the antidote. I saw that's the solution. And when I got back to uh, Britain, I wrote it all up and I sent it to the head of the EU. I said, look, please set up an EU mediation service pronto because there's trouble you know, brewing in the Ukraine places. And I sent it to the Foreign Office as well. I sent it to the heads of various political parties in Britain. Um, And, you know, I got polite letters back from the EU, but they didn't actually do it. I got letters back saying, well, we're sort of kind of doing that already. Thank you very much for your letter. Um, But what I actually suggested, which is a formal thing, the European Union Mediation Service wasn't set up and still doesn't exist. Now, had they done it, had they listened to little old Thomas in twenty fifteen, we wouldn't be having this war. Um, this this would have been solved. We would have experts would have gone out three years ago to solve this because it's a bit not in Europe's interest that Ukraine should fall apart in war. You know, they're all lovely people, whether they're Russian speaking or Ukrainian speaking. I mean, the language is so similar. It's like Devon dialect and Yorkshire dialect. I mean, It's not worth going to war over. Um, So I still maintain that is an architectural thing that needs to be done to create a European Union mediation service. Because at the moment, it's just ad hoc. So Macron flies to see Putin in Moscow, you know, off his own initiative. um, And gets a three-hour lecture on Russian history. I mean, there's no sort of formal mechanism in the European Union to solve these kind of conflicts, and there should be. I think that had we set that thing up and I wrote to the Foreign Office suggesting Britain should play a role in this. Unfortunately, the Conservative government was pulling in an entirely different way. And it was it was pulling us out of the European Union, which I think is a catastrophe for peace. Um, <clears throat> and I think all the evidence points that actually that Brexit thing was engineered by some of Putin's dark moles at the heart of Britain, you know, Farage and all this law. We're taking money off the Russians. So this this dark occultist shadow that Putin has cast ripped right to the heart of, of of Britain. It it sort of tore up the old rule book that we 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 act out of fairness, on a sense of justice, and so on. Our unwritten constitution, you know, unfortunately they they um they gained that system and caused Brexit, which to me was a catastrophic um anti-democratic um uh, thing um so anyway i still live in hope i still believe the european union should should recreate this mediation service it would solve the next bundle of wars um and i still believe britain should rejoin the european union and be part of it i'd love to see it based in edinburgh or, or venice or somewhere so that europe can stand for peacemaking and um this catastrophe and, and similar things could be resolved. Um, <clears throat> can I talk a bit briefly about the Interfaith peace treaty? because I mentioned that. I said I'd share something about Putin on this, okay. This is another r- very relevant project. You know what what is my these, these are all things I've done as a peace magician. You know now a bit about my esoteric history. Most people don't know me for that. They don't know I'm an esotericist or a druid. I'm just a peace academic, right? Um, <clears throat> but, but what I did is I created the first ever interfaith peace treaty in history. Nobody's thought of this. Um, because I was reflecting on how wars end. One of my academic tutors, Michael Hugh Mile, who was professor at University of Kent' Center for Conflict Resolution, he wrote a wonderful book called How Wars End. and they 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 end because, Either one side defeats the other and, you know, inflicts uh, a treaty, or they agree, they fight each other to a standstill. They just say enough is enough. So the Treaty of Westphalia ended the um, Thirty Years' War in Europe in 1648. And it's a magnificent treaty. It it invokes the name of God, (coughs) and the Catholics and Protestants finally agreed to stop fighting. Okay. Took about three years to negotiate. So they they all end with treaties, like World War I ended with the Treaty of Versailles, and so on. So I said, well, how about all these religious wars? Why don't we get an interfaith peace treaty going? Whereby the different religions pledge not to fight anymore. And it's never been done before in history. It's never been thought of. So I, I wrote it out. I drafted, it's got about, it's quite a long document. It's got like about 40 paragraphs. I put it on a website. I've had it translated into Arabic, um, German, French, Japanese, Russian, you know it's in it's translated into various languages. And people can sign it. and, and different faith leaders have have signed it. You know, it's available for for, for signing and agreeing to. Um, and I've sent it to different religious leaders. <clears throat> and um, I sent it to the Russian Orthodox Church. The head of the patriarchate um, and the secretary of interfaith relations wrote back um, and this is the Russian Orthodox Church that Putin belongs to right now from others I'd either had no reply or I had a nice yes please I'll sign it type of response this was the first hostile response I ever got I think it's the only hostile response this guy who was the secretary of interfaith religions in the whole Russian orbit right row back and say no I'm not signing this our patriarchs not signing this because because only the Russian Orthodox Church is true all the other Christians are heretics and all the other religions are devil worshippers so why would we the one true Orthodox truth light and peace church sign a peace treaty with all these devil worshippers worse to that effect, I mean, it was marginally more intelligent, but that was essentially the essence of what he said. And he he was really rude and arrogant. And I was shocked. I said to my assistant, who was here at the time, who spoke Russian, and we'd written to him in impeccable Russian, you know, she couldn't believe it. She said, total arrogance of this guy. But that is actually the attitude that Putin seems to adhere to. So rather than signing an interfaith peace treaty, because he accepts that different religions are valid and different ways to to peace, these people seem to think there literally is only one truth, which is the Orthodox Russian church, and therefore they have the right to conquer and invade others or subvert their countries with spies and, and oligarchs and things, as they did with Trump. You know, Trump was a Russian asset. We know that. There's a book called Compromat, which reveals that. So it explains where they're coming from, this kind of absolutism, which is um, antithetical to proper peace magic or common sense, actually. Um, <clears throat> so, okay. Um, any other questions or shall I press on? I've got still got a couple more things to do. Go for it. Are you okay? Okay. Um, Okay, meanwhile, in another part of the forest, (laughs) I've been going every few years to India to a Jain-run conference. See, I regard the Jains as some of the most impeccably trained peace magicians on the planet. They are sworn to nonviolence, ahimsa, and they're initiates that say you can't reach enlightenment unless you adopt ahimsa, of thought, word, and deed. And I was influenced by Acharya Tulsi, who was one of the great Jain leaders of the 20th century, um, and his disciple Mahapragya, who I met, and and their kind of coordinator, Dr. S. L. Gandhi, um, who's invited me to take part in these interfaith Jain conferences for peace and nonviolence, and I've been to about eight or nine of these and written up the texts, the declaration. So there'd be about 50 or 100 peace workers, light workers from all over the planet, from all different religions, discussing how we can get, you know, peace and and enlightenment between all the religious workers of the planet and and not be dogmatic. You see, the thing about the Jains is they have this concept of Anicantvada, which means the many-sidedness of reality. There isn't just one. So opposite to that, an orthodox guy, I'm the only way the truth of the light thing, which is a misinterpretation of Christ's teachings in my view. I don't believe Christ was a sort of fanatic who said, join me or I'll get you killed off. He was much more sophisticated. But it was distorted after the Byzantine Empire adopted Christianity as its sort of motif. So it had to say, no, there's only one path, and we're the only legitimate path. That was a matter of geopolitics, you see, and that's a distortion. But the Jains have kept the original wisdom, and they say there's Anicantvada means the many sidedness of truth, just as a diamond has many facets, which is what gives us its brilliance and color. So, truth is like a diamond that has many, many facets. So, non dogmatism, non absolutism is the quintessence. And that's why these Jains have been organizing this conference. And the declarations that we've written, you know, are quite historic, really. People have come and signed them and I've drafted them. And um, uh, about a year ago, I I published them all in a book, which is uh, one of my um, offerings to the world of peacemakers. It's called The Little Book of Peace Declarations. And I did it as an 85th birthday present to my friend, Dr. Gandhi, who organizes these events for the last 20 years. He was a disciple of and uh, acharya Tulsi. Um, I thought, wouldn't it be a nice birthday present to give him all these peace declarations in one volume? Because, you know, we've written them together over the last 15 years and they've never been published as one thing. So I put them all together. And then I thought, well, hang on, I should add, that declaration, and that World Congress of Philosophers, and that declaration of peace and global responsibility. And that one, and shouldn't I add in the declaration that set up the UN? And what about the Commonwealth Declaration? So, and what about the treaty banning chemical and nuclear weapons? So I added in, I mean, the title, Little Book of Peace Declarations is ironic because it grew to four volumes and it includes every single peace declaration over the last 300 years, including the Treaty of Westphalia. I put them all in and in the end, I I, I put in the first known peace declaration in history, which was between the Hittite empire in Turkey and the Egyptian empire. They actually signed a, a peace declaration and they there was a text found in the Hittite capital by archeologists. And we found another text in Egyptian, in one of the great um, Egyptian sites. And a copy of that is on the wall of the UN um, you know, headquarters in New York where I've visited and spoken. So, so my little book of peace decorations in quotes grew into the mammoth jum- jumbo book of peace decorations. And that's where I discovered things like the Bioweapons Convention Treaty under which if there's suspected biological warfare going on, we should refer it to the Secretary General, which should have been done with the pandemic and hasn't been done, you know, so it's a resource for people. Um, <clears throat> and it includes all those Jane ones as well. And it's four volumes, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> a lot of work though. Right. Any any final question? I've got one more point, really, I want to make, but you might have some other questions for me before we finish.
0: Well, go ahead with your, what's your final point?
1: OK, so <laughs> the final point is that, you know, where to next? Where do we go next? I mean, I I feel like um, a guy with the finger in in the dike, you know, I've got about 10 fingers in 10 dikes and the water's still flooding in. So what can I do next? You know, I've done everything I can think of, right? Um, so I've come to the, the view that there's only one thing left, right, which is planetary enlightenment. We've tried everything else piecemeal, you know. Problem with academia is it it just does little bits at of time and you spend years specializing in one little thing, you know. Um, no, that's that's too slow. So I am a great believer in enlightenment. You know, don't forget I took that Buddhist vow years ago when I was a t- in a 19 or 20 year old to reach enlightenment this time. But also for the planet as a whole. So I'm still on that meta mahayana, collective global enlightenment idea. I think I th- I think that's the solution. But then what is enlightenment? There are rival schools, different thoughts. So what I'm doing is I'm setting up a course starting in April with my friend Satya Raja. We're co-teaching this course, which is called Enlightenment's plural. And we're looking at pluralizing the concept of enlightenment. So there's not just my root. There's not just my root as a Sufi or my root as an Orthodox Christian or my root as a Jewish Kabbalist or my root as a pagan Druid or my root as a... Um, Advaita of dancer follower or whatever. Let's have a plurality of discourses and compare and contrast our enlightenments. Let's, let's put the cards on the table. In a sense, let's marshal and bring together the peace magicians so that instead of working in isolation, each of us on our own personal enlightenment and our own circle, <clears throat> we actually come and share and say, look, this, this thing I've done works. This strategy I've tried works. This gets you you know, much higher up the enlightenment ladder. So try that. And if we pull all of them collectively, I think we might make that shift to to planetary enlightenment. And then we will expose the kind of the the dark magicians who are still trying to destroy this planet from ignorance. Um, so we're teaching that course. It's 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 a long course. It's a year long. It's like a master's degree. It's one session a month only um and it should be amazing you know sachin is a a a guy i really respect he has his own spiritual lineage different to mine so we're going to co-teach this over the coming year starting in april sort of easter to easter and and enlightenment's plural is i think the solution to um to our human predicament. We'll see if, uh, uh, at the end of that year, whether the planet's cheered up a bit, whether we've got peace in Ukraine and tackle global warming and, you know, all the other crises, ending the war in Yemen. I mean, the war in Yemen is between Shia and Sunni Muslims. I mean, there's no need for that. They're both valid vehicles towards enlightenment, as I'll be sharing in the course. so anyway, that's, that's the last thing. I just wanted to mention that because it's a sort of forward-looking thing. It's, it's hopeful. I don't want people to get the feeling of being overwhelmed by, you know, the tragedies. No, we can fight back. There's the sun daily that, uh, that uh, comes here in France, you know, is, is the symbol of that enlightenment, if you want. Um, and yet, just as there's one sun, but we all see it differently. So there's many enlightenments.
0: Um, Perhaps one last question from me, then. Uh, thank you for sharing all these all these points. Very, very, very fascinating. Um, and for discussing your book, uh, Magical Peacemaking, as well as your career as in, in peace academics and truth and reconciliation commissions and so on, very fascinating stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, what advice do you have for individuals to navigate a, a sort of information landscape, uh, which itself is, it seems, part of, uh, part of the wars that are going on, say propaganda, et cetera, et cetera. How can one navigate and uh, uh, such an information landscape and Mm -hmm. in a certain sense, preserve oneself, is that even possible from becoming polarized uh, uh, or captured in these sorts of uh, broader narratives?
1: Gosh, that's a a good question to end on. Um, Yes, yes, I think it is absolutely very important question. One can, one can be immune to that, that what I call false polarization. You see, as a philosopher, I believe in life as a dialectical process. There's always opposites, as Heraclitus said, as the Tao teaches us, yin-yang, the I Ching. Everything is, is a polarization process, but within a greater harmony. Okay that's that's the beauty of life it it's male female black white no north south whatever these polar opposites exist held in harmony by love there is this central uniting energy force that gen- engenders these polar opposites it creates them you know in the beginning is the one to use the pythagorean monad concept from which the tetraptus comes from the one come the two but that's a process of love there's nothing wrong with polarities they're wonderful we all love them you know that's how we fall in love and have children and have stories and narratives and love stories what's happened now sadly is that the dark forces of ignorance who are essentially sophiaphobic, to use my phrase um have tried to, re, uh, to take hold of that dialectical process of love and turn it into something opposite, to, to create this myth that the polar opposites hate each other. It's a narrative based on hate, and it's a false narrative. You know, the true narrative is that of love, and I published the only academic journal in the world on the nature of love, love studies, inspired by um, an Italian-American, Buscaglia, Um, so let me, so, you know, that's the philosophical answer. We have to remember that the dialectic is based on love and not get sucked into it. Find the love dialogue under the hate narrative. See it as much as possible from both sides and, you know, find the pain that makes some people hate because they're only people like us and they've only got sucked into their own narrative um because they've and normally it's a lack of education you know the 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 sort of orthodox me i'm the only one kind of people they just haven't studied other religions they don't know anything about it so they're terrified of them most most people are stuck in one or two boxes on my periodic table the solution is to give every school every seminary every university a copy of the periodic table and so they learn them all and we become spiritually literate as a a planet that gets rid of this, oh, it's me against them kind of thing. Um, No, it's all of us together. This is the history of what the human spirit, the Geist has done over the millennia. I'm just doing for my tarot card, the the God Nabo, who was the God of scholarship and libraries who invented writing in ancient Babylonia and and Sumeria. You know, they're all children of Nabo whose, whose name also meant prophet, the prophet. The oracular function so i think you know if we if we go back to the roots we we find the unity and then we lose the fear and it can be transformed into love which is you see the difference between love and fear fear is hatred of the other because they're so totally other love is the recognition that the other is a kind of another self and therefore the love energy is the recognition of unity that can flow between the two separates, the two others, without it causing an upset. In fact, it causes ecstasy and, and joy because God, there's another me over there. Isn't she lovely or whatever? You know. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's the solution I think is love. And that's the, the final work of all true peace truids is to bring that knowledge um, but I w- and I want to just also share one thing, just you know, a little newsflash from the the real world. That's the philosophical answer, right? Um, the other answer is this: that <clears throat> about social media in particular. I I belong to an academic forum that meets at Harvard University online, and it's the Center for Intelligence Studies. It's a very high-level thing, and we have people there from. British intelligence, American intelligence, who are also academics, who are studying what intelligence is um, and how it operates. And I've learned a lot. And it's under Chatham House rules. I'm not gonna quote names here, but I can share what I learned. And that is that this, this deliberate polarization through social media is an actual strategy being adopted in some countries. And I learned that China, for instance, has, it is estimated, 50,000 employees full-time working on disrupting the West psychologically through social media penetration. So planting false stories, disinformation, getting this group to hate that group, saying that this president is horrible, you know, like psychological warfare. This is happening online. It's information warfare, psychological warfare. And Russia, likewise, if China has 50,000 people full time doing this, you know, Russia has got possibly as many. I don't know. the, the, The guy didn't say. And so a lot of a lot of. So you have to realize that when you're looking at your Facebook or your Twitter or Instagram, you know, some of this stuff is deliberate, propagandistic, planted stuff by professional um agents who are doing it to screw your mind basically and this is why meditation prayer actual study like reading books (laughs) is so important because you need to keep your own sanity your own love self-love alive you need to keep your own link to spirit we all do so that we don't get swamped by this this nonsense that's going on um, you know, I think it's shocking that that people are now making information a war zone. And um, just to say my solution to this, which I proposed, is to, the world's leadership should sign a cyber peace treaty. There shouldn't be 50,000 Chinese agents doing this. There shouldn't be 30,000 Russians or 10,000 Israelis or 20,000 Americans. I don't know. These people shouldn't. These are dark artists doing this stuff it should be outlawed you know and therefore because warfare has moved into the information zone i'm saying we need a cyber peace treaty whereby we pledge not to do this against each other's countries and i'd love to work with you know like techno geeks and how this could be done technically Um, so that, so that we don't get this polarization and we can go back to re- remembering the true narrative, which is that of love. You know, there's no reason why, like China and Russia and America and Europe and Iran can't share one beautiful world in which we celebrate each other's separate enlightenments. We can have an enlightenment discourse about, well, my Sufism is better than your Christianity, but let's do it in a civilized way you know, in love and not in this sort of, you know, this is like childish games in the playground when you're kids, you fight over who's got most of the card set or whatever, you know. Um, so let's grow up, folks, and um, get on with the real work, which is turning this planet into, um, you know, a, a learning zone for Nabo and his disciples, and Athena,
0: and Sarasvati, and all the others, okay? Well, Dr. Thomas Gluff-Taffern, thank you very much. Blessings. Thanks so much, Steve. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.